You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And you're being seated, you're turning your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, as you're doing so, um, you do have access to our slide notes that you'll be seeing this morning. There's a link available in our bulletin. If you have a smartphone, uh, the QR reader app, you can uh, access our notes for each week. You can go back and look at previous notes as well. Um, if you're ever not here and you're listening to our podcast, you can access those notes through that link. We encourage you to do so. Um, so you can access that through our Google Drive. Revelation chapter 6, as you're getting situated with your notes and um, with your Bibles, I want to be mindful of the fact that we have several people visiting today and with them coming in um, at this point in Revelation, it could be a little confusing. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of where we've been over the past several months regarding Revelation. Um, we are uh, studying Revelation after coming out of the book of Genesis. So we saw kind of the beginning of the world and how God created things, the origin of a lot of the things that we understand about life coming out of the book of Revelation, even our origins of how we worship, how we gather weekly around God's word finds its origins in the book of Genesis. So then we finished the book of Genesis, and then we're jumping straight ahead to the book of Revelation to kind of see the end of the world, how God wraps everything up and brings us back to that paradise existence that existed before sin. Okay, so we come into the book of Revelation, just to give you a quick recap, Revelation chapter 1, Jesus comes to John the disciple who is writing this book, tells him that he's going to give him a vision of things to come, and then immediately after that, John sees Jesus in all of his glory, does his best to describe that to us at the end of chapter 1. But ultimately, we see Jesus as being the supreme ruler of all things. So everything that we approach in Revelation, everything we see in Revelation, all of the, the things that we kind of think of as scary stuff in the book of Revelation, famine and sickness and antichrist and beasts and dragons, all that stuff is submitted to Jesus, right? Like Jesus, first picture we see in Revelation is of Jesus being in control of everything. And then in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see letters to churches that existed during the time that John receives this vision. And John gives instructions to these seven churches. And it's instruction that's very applicable to us today. We went through each one of these churches one by one, talked about what was good about the church, what was not so good about the church, encouragement that Jesus offered to that church, rebuke that Jesus offered to that church. We're in the process right now as a church of evaluating ourselves and trying to highlight things that we do well. We're trying to correct the things that we don't do so well. Um, and so we're trying to take to heart the things that Jesus said to those churches. That led us into Revelation chapter 4 where John gets this vision of God's throne. And again, the highlight being that Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, in control of everything, and in the midst of seeing this great worship service in heaven in Revelation chapter 4, it leads us into chapter 5 where this scroll shows up. And this scroll, we're told, contains God's plans for the future. And the, the scroll is sealed up. It, it's not something that can be unrolled and read. And so there's this search that ensues at the beginning of chapter 5. Who's worthy to open God's scroll? Who is worthy to open this and to make sure that God's plans come about the way that he desires. And nobody is found worthy. This great search ensues. Nobody on heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth, no being is worthy enough to open the scroll. And then Jesus steps forward. 
right? And we see this picture of the slain lamb, this, this one who has died on the cross and yet lives. And Jesus steps forward, and he alone is found worthy to open this scroll that contains God's plans. And so the scroll begins to open, and, and Jesus begins to break. There's seven seals that are being broken, and each one reveals to us a little bit more about God's plans. We saw the, the first four seals containing those four horsemen, horsemen that represent uh, potentially false teaching and war and famine and death. We see in seal five the martyrs that are crying out to God for help. We come to the sixth seal today where we learn about the second coming of Jesus. And it's great for our, our youth that are going to Snowbird in a couple of weeks because on Thursday nights, they do this dramatic skit. They call it the Revelation skit, and, and it's their portrayal of some of the events in Revelation. And there's over 100 staff that work at Camp Snowbird, and the bulk of them end up dressing up uh, like Satan's forces. And so there's an individual who reads the book of Revelation out loud, and every, you know, all the campers and all the leaders are there, and they're listening to the book of Revelation being read, specifically chapter 6. And these seals are being read out loud, and as each one is read, a horseman rides out with his, with his followers. And, and they're dragging Christians, people that are dressed up like Christian martyrs, and they're dragging these people into this arena, and Satan is seen as the leader of these horses. And, and so they begin to surround these individuals who are claiming to be Christians, and, and Satan begins to um, speak over them falsehood and begins to make false promises to them. And, and the martyrs continue to cling and, and hold fast to Jesus. And so they're killed by Satan's people. And it's this really dramatic scene where it's just like, man, this is intense. Like, this is exactly what I'm reading about. And when all hope seems to be lost, Jesus, a, an individual, comes riding in representing Jesus on a white horse with his army and sets all things right. There's a huge pit that they have that, that they light on fire and end up throwing Satan into it, picturing what takes place later in Revelation. And as you're sitting there, I mean, it becomes a worshipful experience because you're seeing as best we can with what John has given us, trying to bring to life the book of Revelation for these students with the hope of them seeing Jesus as the victor over all of our enemies. And that's certainly what we see here in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? We said, leading up to this sixth seal, it looks like the world is in chaos, with famine and hunger and sickness and death and Christians being put to death for their faith. But we said that Jesus rules over all of that, that he's going to bring suffering to an end at the appropriate time. And you'll remember in the fifth seal, these martyrs are crying out, O sovereign Lord, in verse 10, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so these martyrs are saying, Jesus, when, when will you come and avenge what has happened to us? God says, not yet, but soon. 
wait a little bit longer. And verse 12 is the end of their waiting. It's when Jesus comes to make all things right. Our summary sentence for today, and for those again that are visiting, we do this every week with our sermons. This is the main idea that we're going to pull from the text today. On a future historical day, the patience of God will expire and the wrath of the Lamb will be properly revealed and poured out against the unbelieving world. On a future historical day, the patience of God will expire and the wrath of the Lamb will be properly revealed and poured out against the unbelieving world. Yeah, let's jump in. Let me give you some introductory notes and then we'll jump right into our outline. A couple things that I want to point out real quick. First of all, the day of the Lord is the day that Jesus comes and makes all things right. And that day is coming. Verse 12 and following reassures us of that. The day of the Lord is coming. The martyrs were told to rest. They're told that it's coming. And what we find is that it's probably coming far sooner than we realize. And what we're going to find is that most people are going to be unprepared for it. Right? We see a great number of people running and hiding from Jesus when he shows back up here on this earth because they are unprepared for his arrival. Now, we're talking about seal judgments here. There's also bowl judgments and trumpet judgments that are going to come in the book of Revelation. It goes seals, trumpets, and then bowls. And I've told you that what we're going to see and how I'm going to present this to you is that these things are basically a retelling of the story. So we're going to see the seals, and then we're going to come to the trumpets and see a lot of the same things happen again. And then we're going to get to the bowls and see a lot of the same things happen again. Each one of these segments of judgment, seals, trumpets, and bowls, they all end with the second coming of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, uh, we talk about the seventh seal. Um, angels with the censer filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. If we jump to chapter 11, verse 19... We start to come to the end of the trumpets. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was open. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. We see the same type of things happening at the end when Jesus comes back. Uh, we see it also in chapter 16, verse 18. This is at the end of the bowl judgments. Um, and there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So we're going to see kind of a, a recapitalization of these events that we're seeing. And so chapter twelve or chapter 6, verse 12, brings us to the, the uh, end of the seals, and we see the second coming of Jesus listed for us here uh, by the disciple John. The second coming is being pictured as kind of a reversal of creation. So think back to our time in Genesis where everything's dark and light is coming forth and God is creating the world, what we find here is kind of a reversal of creation, right? We see the sun being darkened, the moon's light being put out. We see the stars come crashing down. We see the heavens being rolled back. Kind of a reversal of creation is taking place as Jesus gets prepared to recreate everything. And then what we're going to also find, much of the terminology that we find here in chapter 6 it's listed for us in the Old Testament. Remember I, when we went through the horses, and I told you, this isn't anything new, that God has always talked about his judgment in the, in the form of horses and judgments and famines and deaths and martyrs. 
That's something that was all through the Old Testament. I read you some passages. We're going to find the same thing today here in regards to the events surrounding the second coming, that much of the terminology finds its origins in the Old Testament, which means John's writing this, and if you're a Christian at the time that John was alive and all you had was the Old Testament, and then you're starting to hear some of the circulation of Jesus' teachings, you would have read this, and you would have not thought, hey, this is something radically different than what has ever happened before. You'd have been like, I've heard this stuff. If we were as familiar with the Old Testament as Christians were at that time, and, and because we have the New Testament, oftentimes the Old Testament kind of takes a back seat to the New Testament. Christians oftentimes are going to go and read New Testament. If they're reading their Bibles at all, they're going to go to the New Testament and read New Testament. So we're probably far more, uh, far less familiar with the Old Testament than we should be. Certainly far less familiar with the Old Testament than Christians would have been at that time. And so the, the stuff that's being talked about here in chapter 6 is stuff that we're going to find all through the Old Testament. So this is not something shocking or new that has no context for the Christian. This is stuff that God's always kind of used to describe his coming judgment one day. So we'll see that today as we kind of unpack this. So let's jump into our outline. First of all, number one, the Lamb's return will be dramatic. The Lamb's return will be dramatic. For our kids that are taking notes, when Jesus comes back, everyone will know it. When Jesus comes back, everyone will know it. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black. The full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. When Jesus comes back, everyone will know it. A couple of things that I want to point out to you. First of all, the final judgment will be initiated by Jesus. Let's don't forget. Let's don't lose sight of the fact when he opened the sixth seal. Jesus is the one that initiates the events that take place here. He breaks the seal. He is in control. He directs the coming events. Right? The, the sun doesn't go black. The moon doesn't turn to blood. The sky doesn't roll back. There's not earthquakes and mountains moving. And that's a shock to Jesus. Jesus breaks the seal. Jesus is in control of these events. Jesus is coming back for the church. Jesus is coming back for you and me if we're believers. He's initiating this. Why is that important? Because that gives us comfort and hope as we see things deteriorating around us. As we see the world coming to an end. As we see mankind getting worse and worse. We take comfort in knowing that the horsemen are riding, that Christians are being put to death for their faith, and Jesus is in control of all that stuff. That none of this is happening without his allowance. And he's going to show up and he's going to deal with all the evil that brings so much suffering in our life. So all of the things that, that causes sorrow in our life, Jesus comes to put an end to it. I mean, think about the prayer request that we mentioned this morning. A lot of sorrow that was mentioned this morning. Things that we're struggling with. Things that we desire Jesus to fix or change in our life. And he may or may not change it today. He may not fix the sicknesses and the pains and the hurts that we're praying about right now. He may. He's certainly capable and he's certainly powerful enough to do it. And if it fits within the scope of his plan, he certainly will. But some of those things are designed to test us and to grow us and to strengthen us and to push us into new limits. But we can take comfort and hope that one day he will fix it all. 
He may not fix it today. He may not stop it today. But there is coming a day where we will never have prayer requests again about sickness. We will never feel sorrow over death. We will never experience hurt because of sin. All that stuff will be dealt with, and we won't have to have prayer requests for it anymore. Right? Prayer request time will simply be praise time because there will be nothing that we have to come and petition for in regards to so many of the things that we pray about right now. All that stuff will be dealt with. All that stuff will be fixed. Jesus is initiating this final judgment. He is initiating his return. He is breaking the seal. Secondly, the final judgment will be inaugurated by cosmic signs. The final judgment will be inaugurated by cosmic signs. Now the question is, should we understand them literally? What are we looking for here? Are we looking for literal eclipses where the sun no longer shines? Are we looking for some type of blood moon as um, a famous pastor kind of made popular recently with some of his books looking towards prophecies regarding blood moons and seeing kind of the natural phenomena that comes with eclipses? Are these the type of things that we should be looking for? The idea of stars falling to the earth. Here's one thing that would, that would cause me to be cautious about looking for too literal a fulfillment of some of these signs. First of all, for stars to actually fall to the earth, you have to understand, I don't know that there's any star that's smaller than the earth, right? From a scientific standpoint, stars can't fall to the earth because stars are far bigger than the earth, right? So we read this language and we have to keep in context some of it is very symbolic of the fact that there will be cosmic signs when Jesus comes back. How literal do we take these? I'm not really sure, but I can assure you we're not supposed to try to figure out when this happens. Right? Remember, Jesus, we talked about this. Jesus had disciples constantly saying, when, 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 when? And Jesus never answers the question when, nor does he ever say, hey, go study science and try to figure out when the moon's going to turn to blood and when the sun's going to be dark and when meteor showers may come. He never tells them to try to figure out the when. He always tells them to stay strong, to stay faithful, to share the gospel with others as you see these things happening. Right? So I don't think we have to worry about the when or the what so much as to what this looks like, but I think we are being told that cosmic signs will happen that will make it clear to everybody that Jesus is coming back. You find in the Old Testament, especially, earthquakes a lot of times accompany divine visitation. When God shows up to do something, a lot of times earthquakes ensue prior to him showing up. In Exodus chapter 19, probably the most famous one, when God descends upon Mount Sinai and begins to speak to Moses and begins to reveal things to the children of Israel, it says in Exodus 19:18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. Right? There's this earthquake seemingly taking place here at the foot of the mountain, and God's presence is, is, being, is descending upon this mountain. In Isaiah 29, verse 6, again, I want you to see the Old Testament language. So when we read it in the New Testament, we shouldn't be shocked that God's going to show up and there's going to be an earthquake that takes place. Isaiah 29, verse 6. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with an earthquake and with a great noise, with a whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Matthew chapter 27, at the time of the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. 
Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Oftentimes, earthquakes accompany divine visitations. And so we should expect when Jesus comes back, there may be some rumblings. There may be some earthquakes, which is a sign of his presence. In the Old Testament, there are several passages that allude to these same cosmic signs of God's judgment. And again, I want to show you these things because I don't want, I don't want Revelation to remain this, this hard-to-understand book as though it's something unique and special from some of the things that God's already revealed. In Isaiah chapter 13... Verse 9, this is God judging Babylon at that time, okay? Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Verse 13, Therefore I'll make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. From the same terminology being used, God says, this is going to happen when I judge Babylon. In Joel chapter 2, verse 10, those of you that know that in the Old Testament a little bit, you know that God's bringing judgment on nations throughout the Old Testament, but he also has to bring judgment on his people because they don't do the right thing either. Joel chapter 2 is a, is a chapter that talks about God's judgment on Israel. It says in verse 10, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That's the same question they're asking at the end of Revelation chapter 6, right? Who can stand when Jesus comes in his judgment? Same question being asked here. So some similar terminology in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 3, next chapter over, God's talking about judging the nations. And in verse 14, similar language. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The New Testament alludes to some of these same signs. Uh, we won't take time to read all of these, but in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. All of them sound eerily similar to what we're reading in Revelation. And notice, I said Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nothing about John. John doesn't write about this in the Gospel of John. He writes about it here in the book of Revelation. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 24, let's see the similar language that Jesus uses. We'll just read 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels. This is the part that we don't have in Revelation 6 yet. We'll get it in chapter 7. 
but rumblings and, and sun darkened and bloody moon and all this stuff's happening and it's like, man, this is horrific. But look what happens, what Jesus says. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This isn't a horrific thing for believers. This is a great and glorious day when the prayer request about sin and hurt and sickness stops. And Jesus comes back. And Jesus comes back and fixes everything. And Jesus gives us the same language that John gives us in Revelation chapter 6. The point isn't to figure out when these things happen. Because if they can be predicted, they're not really supernatural, right? Like this one guy made a ton of money off selling these books about blood moons and prophecies. Makes a ton of money off of this. Why would Jesus come back at a time when we could actually predict it? It kind of removes the supernatural part of it, right? Jesus says you're not going to know when. You're not going to know when. So the point of reading Revelation 6 it should not conjure up a desire for us to go try to figure out when this stuff could happen scientifically. That's not the point of what John's writing here. The point of what John's writing here is for us to take comfort in the fact that Christians won't be killed for all eternity. Right? These martyrs are crying out, when will this stop? Jesus says, not right now, but soon. Verse, or chapter, or verse 12 of chapter 6. The soon has come, and Jesus comes to stop it. That's the point of the passage. That's the point, to comfort us in the midst of our sorrow. The point is that we, we see things deteriorating. Even after the final day, we should expect it as a necessary part of God's history. So even when we hear about earthquakes, when we hear about famines, when we hear about these things, we can take comfort in knowing that God's presence is there and God is doing something for his glory. I think it's interesting to know we talked a lot about idolatry in Revelation 6, or in Revelation, a lot of these churches falling prey to idolatry. What we find here in verse 12 and following is that God decisively deals with idolatry by bringing an end to all of the objects that man has wrongfully loved. Let me say that again. God decisively deals with idolatry by bringing an end to all of the objects that man has wrongfully loved, including the many deities they've created in the sky, right? A lot of the people at these times have been worshiping false gods in the sky, and all of these things come crashing down, right? Those gods aren't to be found at the end. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the king who's in control of everything, and all these false gods begin to fall. But think about it. Even if we're not worshiping false gods, think about all the things that we oftentimes give our affection and our love and our pursuits to that come to an end on this day, right? It says that the rich and the powerful can't buy themselves out of God's judgment. All of their hard work doesn't give them an advantage on this final day, right? All of these vain pursuits towards the things of this world stop on this day. All of it ends, and none of it has any eternal value at this point. If we're not using the things that God has created for his eternal glory, and we're using them for our satisfaction or for our glory, all that stuff comes to an end on this day. And we've invested in something that we can't live out after. Like, like the investment stops at this point. No return on it anymore. All this stuff comes to an end. God decisively deals with idolatry, brings all the objects that man has wrongfully loved to an end. Number three, the final judgment will drive people to flee. So you have all these cosmic signs happening, 
And men begin to flee because Jesus is coming back. Kings of the earth, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. The arrival of the Lamb's wrath will leave no doubt as to what is happening. No one will question who is orchestrating the events. Here's why I don't need somebody coming out and telling me when the next blood moon is and expecting Jesus to show up on that day. Because I'm told that when Jesus shows up and the moon turns to blood, they know it's because Jesus is here, not because scientifically it's supposed to be a blood moon today. Right? These people know what is happening. They know who is coming and they know why he is here and they want to flee from it. Isaiah chapter 2 gives us a picture of this as well in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 19 People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver, their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the vats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts and the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Idolatry comes to an end. Everybody's running and fleeing from the Lamb. Number two, the Lamb's judgment will be impartial and comprehensive. The Lamb's judgment will be impartial and comprehensive. For our kids, when Jesus judges, he will be fair. And we learn a lot about God in regards to his partiality and his views on partiality in James chapter 2. And all of this has been a part of context, I'm sure, where partiality has been shown towards certain people because of certain things. And God disagrees with it. James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Talks about, you know, if a man's wearing certain things, if he has certain possessions, that we shouldn't show a type of favoritism towards that individual. Uh, it says, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So God's not a God of partiality. Specifically, God shows no partiality in his salvation. And that's a, that's a great encouragement to us this morning because we all come from different various walks of life different backgrounds. We can probably trace our, trace our family history to all different backgrounds. In Acts chapter 10, we're reminded that Jesus' salvation can be extended to anyone and everyone. That no partiality is shown based on how much money you have or who was your, your forefather. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him up on the third day, made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't that a comfort this morning that it doesn't matter if we're a Jew or not a Jew? Does it matter if we trace our blood to Abraham or not? That we can be saved. Does it matter how much money we possess? Does it matter what positions we hold in our jobs? Does it matter if we're rich or poor, or slave or free? Does it matter? Salvation is extended to us. God shows no partiality. He also shows no partiality in his judgment. Back in Revelation 6, we see these people that will be experiencing judgment when Jesus comes back, right? We've got kings and great ones and generals and rich and powerful, slave and free. That's seven. Seven different types of people. Remember what we've said about the number seven in the book of Revelation. It's symbolic. Remember the seven spirits of God represent the Holy Spirit. It talks about God's omnipresence. Seven different types of people that are judged here. We're not leaving anybody out. By using the number seven, Jesus is saying, everybody. Everybody's included in this. We're not leaving anybody out. No partiality is being shown. Nobody gets excluded. Nobody gets excused. Your earthly social status doesn't prevent you from being judged on this day. You don't get any privileges on this day. Revelation 19, that day when Jesus comes riding in on that horse, another picture of what's happening here, the same group of people are listed. In Revelation 19, I saw heaven open and hold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. He judges and makes war. Talks about him come riding in. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. It says in verse 17, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, both free and slave, both small and great. Same people being judged in Revelation 19 and Revelation chapter 6 and a retelling of this passage. Those who normally get special treatment here on this earth, they're not going to get any of that thing. When we were in Uganda visiting, um, there's some roads that are better than other roads. And Chris was explaining it to us that as we're driving to his house, he said this road is paved because it's paved for the rich people that live on this road. And then the road stops being paved where the rich people stop living. And then the poor people pick back up with their dirt roads. The houses are nice. And then there's this drastic drop-off. And the rich people are people that are in government over there. And so you see great privileges being given to certain people and great disadvantages being given to others. Jesus says on this day, no more privileges. Your social status doesn't give you privilege on this day. Everybody falls under this judgment. Everybody's hiding in the same mountains. Everybody's crying out to the same rocks for relief. The untouchables in this life will be completely vulnerable before him. He's a God who knows all, God who sees all. All right, lastly, number three, the Lamb's wrath will be horrific. For our kids, being saved by Jesus allows Christians to escape this judgment. The Lamb's wrath will be difficult to bear. Made evidence by the fact that these people prefer death over facing them. Right? They're crying out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Term to know for you real quick. The term wrath. We use this term a lot when referencing scripture and God's anger towards sin. 
but it's not God's uh, temper towards sin. We understand wrath as being God's proper response to man's sin. It's proper. It's right for God to hate sin because God is holy. And Scripture tells us that God is right to be angry towards sin. For one reason, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we're told that every man has enough knowledge about God to be held accountable to him. For the wrath of God in Romans 1.18 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all things that have been made so they are without excuse. Go back to, go back to Genesis. Right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates everything, and he creates it in such a way that man can see that there is a creator that he's accountable to, leaving us without excuse. But the good people could argue, hey, we're not sinful, we don't deserve God's judgment, but we skip to Romans 2, 1, therefore you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, or every one of you who thinks that you're okay because you're not as bad as somebody else, for then passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He goes on to talk about maybe you're not as bad as other people, but you still do those same things, even if you only do them in your heart. He says you're without excuse. And then you skip to Romans chapter 3, and it says that every mouth will be shut, stopped. Revelation 3, or Romans 3.19 says the whole world will be held accountable to God and will be found guilty. So God's wrath is proper because we're all guilty before God. But then I put in my notes, it's even more proper because God is, man has rejected God's merciful delay. 2 Peter 3 says, and you deserve wrath, but God delays his judgment. Why? So that man has opportunity to repent. And he's extended that delay for, for thousands of years. And man continues to reject the opportunity to repent. And so his, his wrath is proper because we know that we're sinners. And we don't repent even though God delays judgment. And so the Lamb will bring his wrath. And he will bring it rightfully. And what we're told in Revelation 6 is no one will be able to hide from it. No one can hide from this judgment. Though there will be attempts to, no one can hide from it. There's no doubt who they're hiding from, right? There's no question as to why there's earthquakes and why the sun is darkened. They know who has come and they know why he has come. And they're scared and they're running from him. His appearance will be fearful for the guilty. Unless we think these are innocent people, we're told later in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, Revelation 16, verses 9 through 11, that there was no repentance, no sorrow for their sins, even though God gave them chances to repent in the book of Revelation. It says that God brought temporary judgment, and the, the passage specifically says the people did not repent. They hated God more after the fact. There was no turning to God, no repentance toward God. So let's, let's don't think of these innocent people that want to be Christians or hiding in the rocks here. These are people that hate God. They want nothing to do with Jesus on that day when Jesus comes back. Rather than pleading with God for mercy, they plead for a violent death. This is rooted in Hosea 10.8 where we see some similar language. And, it, and it's ignorant because they think that death would allow them to escape the Lamb. But what do we find in Revelation 20? 
that everyone that's dead rises from the dead to appear before the Lamb for judgment, right? So death is only a temporary escape because they will still face the Lamb. Even if these rocks do fall upon them and kill them, they will stand before the Lamb. There is no escaping His judgment. The tragedy here is that death is more desired than a relationship with the one who has died on our behalf for us. Think about this. They're crying out to be put to death to escape the one who came in humility to die for all. They're saying, hey, I'd rather die than stand with the one who died for me. The essence of their sin is coming to bear that they are so prideful. They reject the, the, the kingship of Jesus. They don't want to submit to him. They go, it goes back to Genesis where, where, where Satan is saying, you don't want to have to listen to that God. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want good things for you. He's trying to hold you back. And so they say, I'd rather die than stand before that person who died for me. Adam and Eve are the first ones we see hiding from their sin. We see these people in Revelation following suit. But I reference her all the time. Rahab is a great example of one who shows us what it looks like to not hide, but to run to grace. Right? Rahab is that, that prostitute that's found in Jericho, and the nation of Israel is about to pulverize <coughs> her city. And she could easily run to the next city and try to escape and try to hide in the mountains. But what does she do? She comes to the Israelite slaves and says, save me, save my family, take me with you. Right? Like, I want to find mercy and grace from your God. I know who your God is. I want to be a part of it. So instead of hiding, she runs and we're shown that God is certainly a God of grace as he welcomes her. Lastly, number two. So no one's going to hide from his judgment. The question is asked, though, will anyone be able to stand before his judgment? These, these unbelievers are crying out, fall on us, hide us. The great day of wrath is here. How can this be good for anybody, is their question. Who could possibly stand on this day? Now that Jesus has come back, how could this possibly be good for anybody? Nahum chapter 1 Pulling out some Old Testament right here. Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. Same language. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Here's the encouragement. We, we read this passage and we see Jesus coming back and we see all these cosmic signs and we see wrath coming. And if you're a believer, you're sitting there saying, how's this good news? Like, why am I here on a Sunday to hear about this bad news? And the good news is that Jesus makes a way for us to stand. The question is, who can stand on this day? And the answer is decisively given that believers stand on this day when Jesus comes back. Joel chapter 2 Verse 28. Actually, we're not going to read Joel chapter 2, verse 28, because it's repeated again in Acts 2. It's quoted in Acts 2, so I want to read it to you in the New Testament context. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes upon uh, believers in, in, in this way. And um, Acts chapter 2, verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from that day. Like, that's what we're saved from, is the day that Jesus comes back and the sky is rolled back and he comes in his wrath. 
That day we can be saved, the Bible tells us. It comes that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who can stand on that day? Believers. Believers can stand on that day. I can't wait to, to get into Revelation chapter 7 next week and in the weeks to come. Because in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, what do we find? After this I look, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages. What are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These unbelievers say, who could possibly stand? I can. I can stand on that day that Jesus comes back. Why? Because Jesus has saved me. Jesus has come and he's been perfect for me and he's died for me so that I don't have to cry out to rocks to kill me on that day. I don't have to try to hide from his judgment that day. Why? Because his judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross for me. Right? I don't have to worry about God's wrath anymore because that wrath has been extinguished for me. That's the, that's the good news that's attached to Revelation chapter 6. Jesus is coming to put a stop to those people that kill Christians. And Christians will stand on that day. Believers can take comfort that the shaking of creation will usher in a new world. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about this world passing away, the new world coming. Believers can take comfort that though creation will be shaken, they will not be shaken. So we see all this shaking, these earthquakes, the, the sky being darkened, all this stuff that's kind of scary looking when you read it. But I came across Isaiah chapter 54 this week, and it was extremely encouraging to think about the fact that if we're here on this day when all of this happens, hopefully this is the verse that comes to mind. For the mountains may depart. Remember we talked about mountains and islands going away. For the mountains may depart. The hills may be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. And that's awesome in context of this, right? That when things are being shaken around us, his love never stops for us. And it may not be a literal earthquake, Right? Things may be shaking in your life right now circumstantially. And the comfort and encouragement is that mountains could depart. Hills could be removed. Steadfast love never departs from you. Hebrews chapter 12. Last verse I want to read to you. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, talking about Jesus who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. I mean, it's like God's putting in a sifter all the stuff and shaking everything out that he can so that the only thing that remains is the things that can't be shaken. Believers that enter into a kingdom that endures for eternity. Who can stand? Believers can stand with Jesus in his kingdom forever. The application for us this morning. First of all, are we actively trying to hide our sin to avoid judgment or working to fight our sin by exposing it and confessing it? 
We may be saved this morning, and so we don't have to think in terms of hiding in a rock or a mountain one day when Jesus comes back. But if we're not careful, some of us do that on a daily basis. We try to hide in our sin versus exposing it and fighting it. Are we actively trying to hide our sin, or are we working to fight our sin by exposing it and confessing it? Number two, are we guilty of pursuing human institutions that will ultimately fall and worshiping things that will ultimately be destroyed? And let's look at context here. This earth is passing away. How are we spending our time this week? Does our schedule this week reflect that we worship Jesus or that we worship something else? Are we pursuing positions at our jobs that ultimately will give us no advantage on this day? Are we pursuing joys and contentments in the things of this world in an inappropriate way? Right? Like we can enjoy sports, we can enjoy hobbies, we can enjoy things if we're using them for God's glory. But if they become our, our gods that we worship, that we pour everything into, what a poor investment we're making when those things end on this day. So just pause and step back and look at your calendar this week. How do you plan to spend your time? We don't know if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, right? We don't know. We know he's coming back at some point. That's for sure. Does our weekly calendar this week, does our to-do list this week reflect that we worship Jesus or that we're pursuing things that won't outlast us? Are we actively trying to hide our sin or are we looking to fight it? Then our family worship questions to use this week as we reflect back on the sermon. Number one, how does our weekly family calendar show that we worship Jesus rather than this world? And then number two, if we know that Jesus offers forgiveness, why are we so tempted to hide our sin? If we know that Jesus offers forgiveness, why are we so tempted to hide our sin? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're certainly thankful for Revelation chapter 6. And I know selfishly we'd love to have more details. We'd love to know what it means for the sun to be darkened. We'd love to know what it means for the moon to turn to blood and, and how to fully understand that. But God, I pray that we would take comfort this morning knowing that what is very clear from this passage is that when you come back, we're going to know it. We're going to know it. It's going to be obvious. There's going to be enough signs taking place around us that everybody's going to know you've come back and that you're real, and that everything we've been banking on, everything we've been hoping in, is shown to be true. So God, I'm thankful for that encouragement this morning. I'm thankful that we know you're coming back to put an end to all the things that cause so much hurt and suffering in our life. Father, we, we can simply remember back to our prayer request today, request that's centered on sorrow and, and suffering and hurt that we want to see alleviated. God, I pray that those requests would create an, a, a greater longing in us for this day when Jesus comes back and answers those requests. Father, I pray that we would take comfort and encouragement in knowing that when Jesus comes in all of his wrath, this does not apply to us as believers. That on that day, you're going to send out angels or, or whoever or whatever to gather your church from the four corners of the earth to collect us into your presence for all eternity. And while there may be some asking the question, who can stand, who can endure, who can, who can handle this? God, I'm thankful that you've already given us the answer. That we as believers can stand on this day. That we as believers can look forward to this day. That mountains may be shaking around us. But your steadfast love remains upon us. 
Father, I'm thankful that the lamb came to be that sacrifice for us. I'm thankful for Jesus this morning. I'm thankful that we can be here this morning to celebrate the resurrection once again. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful to, to expose our sin and not hide even today leading up to that great day. That we would be faithful as your followers to, to fight sin and to expose it and not to, to hide from it. Not to try to, to hide it and to avoid doing the right thing. God, I pray that you would protect us from, um, from, from, not, from not being faithful to you, to, to, to worshiping other things. God, I pray that we would step back and be conscious to look at our calendar this week and what we plan to use our time to do. We know our time is limited. Father, I pray that we would be able to reflect properly to others that we worship Jesus and we believe Jesus is coming back. God, I thank you for the encouragement we've seen today. I pray that you would guard us and protect us from being scared of anything that we read in Revelation. Help us to be constantly reminded that you're in control. And when we see things deteriorating around us, as we see this world getting worse and we see sin increasing and we see things coming to an end, they would create a hope in us that, that Jesus is coming back for us. And for those that may not be believers here this morning, Father, I pray that you would, you would convict them that they are not ready for the day that Jesus comes back. That you would draw them to salvation, help them to see that you're not partial, that it doesn't matter what they've done in the past, you're willing, ready, and able to forgive, much like you did Rahab from her sinful past. We thank you that you show no partiality. Thank you that you're a fair God, a God who's gracious enough to make a way so that we could be spared fairly. Praise you and thank you for the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.